0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 194, A Big Fat Dark Age Wedding. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at the Podcast.com. And thank you very much to Kimberly, David, and Claire for signing up already. On February 13th, 858, something significant happened up in Scotland. We will go into it more in detail in the Celtcasts, but Kenneth Macalpin, King of the Picts, quite possibly the most famous of all the kings of Scotland, died. And his brother, Domnall, often known as King Donald I, took the throne as I said, we will go into more detail on this in the Celtcasts, but I wanted to give you a marker for where we are in time. But let's get back to the South. Do you remember several episodes ago during the Everybody Lies episode, where we talked about how the record gives the impression of a peaceful and tranquil relationship between the sons of Athelwolf, and how the circumstances don't suggest that that was at all likely? Well, in this episode, I'm going to give you some of the evidence we have that gives many historians pause, and makes them suspect that there is a lot more turmoil than Asser, Alfred, and even the chroniclers would like us to believe. Here we are in 858, and everything has changed in Wessex. King Athelbald has ascended to the throne, and he's married his father's widow in an attempt to solidify his hold on power, and also avoid the awkwardness that could come from Judith contesting him for the throne, which was a very real possibility. She was a consecrated queen, after all. And she'd witnessed charters as Regina. And of course, she was the great-granddaughter of Charlemagne. If you were Athelbald, you'd likely be thinking it was best to nip that in the bud. Of course, marrying a potential rival to his throne didn't mean that everything was peachy for Athelbald. He still had his brothers to deal with. First up, you had the two youngest brothers, Athelred and Alfred. Even though they were younger, the boys held lands jointly with Athelbald, and it was a lot of land. The idea behind Athelwolf's will that granted these lands was presumably to provide his sons with enough wealth and power to secure their thrones, and of course reward their loyal followers. To do that, the lands needed to be able to be transferred from son to son to son, hence the provision that the land was jointly held by all three of them. Based upon this scheme, my guess is that it would be difficult for any of the brothers to unilaterally dispose of any lands. And that made things a little complex for Athelbald. After all, he needed those lands to better secure his throne. And so the best way for him to navigate this situation would be to keep his brothers close, and to utilize that proximity, as well as their young ages, to enable him to rule over those lands in their stead and basically make any utilanderal decisions he wanted to anyways. So, for a nine-year-old Alfred, this meant that while the days of sitting at his father's side were over, he still would be somewhere near the halls of power, because King Athelbald would need to keep him under his thumb. Now, the other younger brother that we hadn't mentioned, King Athelbert of Kent, would have been a much more serious obstacle for King Athelbald. They were both kings and brothers. But who would be the overking? Athelbert had been ruling Kent the longest, but Athelbald held the throne of Wessex and he was also the older brother. It's a sticky situation and scholars seem to largely agree that Athelbald wanted his brother Athelbert of Kent to serve him as a sub-king, similar to how his father had things arranged. This would make the most political and military sense, as it would keep the territory of Greater Wessex somewhat unified and allow King Athelbald to marshal the forces of both kingdoms should the need arise. The trouble, though, is that it isn't clear whether or not Athelbert agreed with that plan. After all, it would mean that he would be ceding power to a brother that he might not have liked or trusted, given that whole rebellion thing. And even if they had a good relationship... He was still being asked to serve his brother. I don't think I know anybody with siblings who would be super excited about that idea. Unfortunately, we can't be sure what their relationship was like, nor how their kingdoms were arranged with respect to each other. In large part, all we know is that during this period where their reigns intersected, King Athelbert of Kent issued one charter, and King Athelbald of Wessex issued two charters. That's not exactly the best situation for historians. However, you should know by now that sometimes these dry land documents can hide a bit of drama. And that is certainly the case here. If you look closely at the charters, you'll notice that despite being brothers, kings, and potentially allies, if not liege and subject, neither of them appear on the witness list for each other's charters. They're just absent. Now, that's surprising given how common it was for influential family members to witness charters. And it makes you wonder, could these brothers even stand to be in the same room as each other? What's even more surprising is that the two youngest boys, Alfred and Athelred, don't appear in the charters either. Now, that does make sense for King Athelbert of Kent's charters since the boys might have been the wards of King Athelbald. And frankly, it would be kind of strange if they weren't. But in that situation, if there was conflict between the two kings, it's unlikely that King Athelbald would have wanted to risk losing his control over his brothers by allowing them to visit Kent. Now, it does appear that King Athelbert of Kent might have wanted to cover up some of the awkwardness that came out of his brother's absence, because he created an enormous witness list. Honestly, the charter seems like it was witnessed by damn near everyone in Kent. It was over the top, and it gives the impression that this was the result of insecurity. For example, if he didn't have the approval of Wessex, and he was worried that that might be a problem going down the road, well, he might have wanted to have all the nobles of Kent come by and say, yeah, we were also on board with that charter. Or maybe this was just basic run-of-the-mill passive aggression. Kind of like, oh yeah, Athelbald, you couldn't bring yourself to witness my charter? Interesting. Well, you know, even Unferth managed to make this trip, and he lives in the Isle of Wight. What's your excuse? So even though it's a little bit shocking that they're not on each other's charters, it is understandable that Alfred and Athelred aren't on Athelbald's charters. A lot of Athels, I know, I'm sorry about this. What's really surprising for me, though, is that on the charters issued in Wessex by King Athelbald, Alfred and Athelred aren't on there. Now, Alfred has been witnessing charters since he was six years old. And following the death of his father, it's generally assumed that he would live at court with his eldest brother. You would think that he would be somewhere nearby, signing charters and doing courtly things. Judith was, and she was signing as Regina. So where was Alfred? And where was Athelred? Well, the sources are suspiciously silent as to what was going on with Athelred and Alfred. Asser doesn't say what was happening, the chronicle goes dark, charters slow down. There's not much in the way of coinage either for us to rely on. It's like a black hole just swallowed up a period of about a year and a half. It's strange. But, if Alfred was in court, we would expect him to be appearing on these charters. So where exactly did he and his brother go? It's not clear but it is one of those things that point to a less-than-perfect tranquility within the House of Wessex. The elder brothers apparently weren't talking, and the younger brothers have vanished. Athelbald is married to his dad's ex, and the church was so angry about it, they were apoplectic. Now, my guess with Alfred is that his noble childhood spent with all the pleasures afforded to members of the West Saxon royal family had probably come to an end. Those summers spent swimming, the large feasts, the tales and poems, the harp music, that was probably all in his past. Maybe he would still go hunting, and perhaps he'd play a game of neftafel with Athelred or some other nobles of his age. But his access to politics and the finer aspects of life were likely heavily restricted, if not completely brought to an end. King Athelbald needed to travel throughout his kingdom. That's what a king did. But I doubt that Athelbald would want to go through the effort of keeping his youngest brothers in court, especially since that would only grant them access to the halls of power. Athelbald had no reason to want his potential rivals to be known and respected in court. Besides, they didn't need to be directly in his court for him to have control over their lands. They just needed to be his wards. Athelbald could easily have just left them with a trusted advisor, And in addition to protecting his political flank, not having to worry about looking after his younger brothers would free the new king to focus on more pressing matters, like the rise of nearby petty kingdoms and territories held by Scandinavian warlords. Beginning in the prior year, 857, we start seeing records of a Scandinavian warlord named Imhar. And he was clearly giving the Irish a horrible time. Many historians think that Imhar is the same individual that we hear about later under the name Ivar the Boneless, one of the famed sons of Ragnar Lothbrok. If this is the case, Ireland was in serious trouble. Actually, they were in serious trouble either way, because Imhar's campaign would go on to lay waste to large sections of Ireland for five of the next seven years. These reports of Vikings' devastating territories so close to home would have been extremely disturbing for King Athelbald. Even if King Athelbald wasn't worried about Imhar, what messengers would have told him in 859 would definitely have kept him up at night. West Francia had started to stabilize. Against all odds, the kingdom had managed to survive the flood of crises, internal wars, and it even managed to survive its foolish nobility, hiring unscrupulous vikinger bands as mercenaries. And thanks to some pretty dirty dealings, if we're going to be honest, West Francia finally had a chance to catch its breath. And at long last, it could start defending itself against the Viking threat. Now... Had this been decades earlier, this might have been good news for Britain because it could have meant the reinstatement of the Frankish Coast Guard. And that alone might have been effective enough to redirect most of the raiders east. But it wasn't decades earlier. It was now. And the Scandinavians had already become wealthy, powerful, and this is the most unfortunate part for Britain. They had established forward operating bases in Orkney, Francia, and we're now even working on Ireland. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So, rather than stopping the flood of raiders going into the west, by bolstering their defenses, West Francia was simply becoming a less attractive target. And this drove the raiders right into the poorly defended shores of the British kingdoms. To make matters worse, these fleets of raiders were getting ever more daring and ambitious. On that same year, a man named Hastin and another raider, Bjorn Ironsides, launched a massive fleet with the goal of making the ultimate raid. They would sack the Eternal City itself, Rome. Now, Bjorn Ironsides might sound familiar to some of you because this is the same Bjorn Ironsides that's reputed to be a son of Ragnar Lothbrok. So setting out from their base on the Loire, The two warlords, along with 62 ships, penetrated the Mediterranean, passed the Straits of Gibraltar, and started striking any city they found there. It's likely they took prisoners during these strikes, and that may account for the annals noting the appearance of blemen in Ireland, which, depending on your source and translation, might mean blue men, but also might mean black men. This is interpreted by many historians as an indication that the Viking raiders were now bringing Moorish and North African prisoners back with them. And it wouldn't be out of the question, given that Ireland was quickly becoming a major hub for the Scandinavian slave trade. But back in the Mediterranean, Bjorn and Hastin's fleet pillaged their way east, wintered in Camag, and finally came upon a city that they believed to be Rome. This city was about 300 kilometers farther north than they expected it to be, and it was far smaller than the tales they'd probably been told of Rome. It also lacked many of the geographical and urban features that one might have expected to find at Rome. But the warlords figured this city should be Rome. It was big, it was defended, and it was far larger than most of the villages they would have been familiar with back home. So they beached their ships and approached the city. The trouble was, it wasn't Rome. It was Luna, a much smaller settlement that was likely populated by a bunch of rather confused and soon-to-be-slain or enslaved locals. That sucks so much. Can you imagine hanging out at a pub and suddenly a bunch of gigantic gingers come tearing through and set everything on fire while screaming, SHOVE IT, TEXAS! And you're in Oklahoma? It's just so weirdly unfair. I wonder if there are any locals who saw the longboats beaching themselves along the narrow strip of sand and started shouting, no, 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 put down the torches. You got bad directions. You need to keep going south. But even if this wasn't Rome, the Vikings quickly realized that the city was too well defended to effectively be besieged. But Hastin had a plan. He knew these men would be Christians, and he was familiar with Christian customs. So he arranged to meet with a local bishop and agreed to be baptized and make pledges of eternal peace. I'm sure the bishop thought this was a pretty big get for God. I'm also sure that Haston thought the bishop was a massive sucker. Shortly after his baptism, Haston told his men to lay him on a platform and pretend that he's dead. His men obliged. And the Vikings wailed and bellowed lamentations and brought Hastin's corpse to Luna and begged for a Christian funeral. The elders of Luna agreed and allowed Hastin's followers into the city so that they could carry his corpse to the church. Once inside, Hastin leapt from the platform and he and his men slew the inhabitants of the city and sacked Luna like a low-rent Trojan horse. Now, we can't be sure how much information was reaching Wessex from the Mediterranean. But stories like this would be shocking to hear. You can imagine that King Athelbald was becoming increasingly worried about what was happening overseas. And whether or not his kingdom would be able to withstand a force like this. He may have found comfort in the knowledge that the West Saxons were quite effective in the field. And that one of his closest allies... Bishop Aylstan of Sherborne was a battle-hardened warrior who had already defeated the Scandinavians on at least one occasion at the Battle of the River Parrot. But still, this was becoming eerie. It probably felt like the world was coming to an end. To make matters worse, the church was becoming increasingly irate about King Athelbald's marriage to Judith. And they were pretty clear as to why. You can't marry your stepmother. It's been outlawed for generations, and so the church declared the marriage invalid on the grounds of consanguinity. This was, of course, before the Habsburgs did their best to test the limits of consanguinity by marrying an endless cascade of nieces. But these were simpler times. So with all that conflict looming on the horizon, it looks like this was one fight too many for the new king, and he bent to the church's demands and consented to an annulment. Now, this would have appeased the church, but he still was in an awkward position. Judith had been witnessing charters as Regina, and she still was a queen. Even if the marriage was annulled, she was a dowager queen. And Wessex hadn't had a queen for ages. You have to wonder if there is any sort of consensus as to what the bounds of her power were. I mean... She clearly had power when her first husband was alive, and she had power when she married her second husband. But now that the marriage was annulled, did her status and power revert to where it was with that first marriage? What would happen? Nothing like this had ever happened before in Wessex. And she had land a lot of land. So, what happens to that? The West Saxons weren't all that fond of the idea of a woman in power they even concocted strange myths of mercy and noble women and charlemagne in order to better explain why they didn't like the idea of women having power women plus power in wessex was a huge no-no but here they were with the dowager queen judith who was either 15 or 16 years old at this point and who had a significant degree of economic influence so what happens would she demand a place in court hell Would she pressure the king to allow her to co-rule? With the degree of wealth, family support from Francia, and of course her marriage link to the popular and recently deceased King Athelwolf, it seems like all bets might have been off. And could Athelbald really just give her the cold shoulder in this situation? Well, it turns out that he didn't have to worry about the possibilities for very long. Because on the 20th of December, 860, well, King Athelbald died childless. He had been king only for about 18 months, and the now 16-year-old Judith was once again a dowager queen. I wonder if she felt like a jinx. I also wonder if she stabbed him to death. Probably not. I would think that the West Saxon scribes, who were famously grumpy about women in power, would have been the first to tell us about what a black widow Judith was, if there was even a hint of something like that so it was probably heart disease. Or laugh. But King Athelbald was dead, and his body was transferred to Sherborne, the see of his perennial ally and fellow rebel, Bishop Aylstan, And there he was interred. It's interesting that he wasn't buried in Stenning or Winchester. That's where his father and his grandfather were buried. I'm honestly not sure what was going on there, whether this was just personal preference, or if it's a sign of deeper conflicts within the family. But regardless, Athelbald was dead. And as a consequence, Wessex was in another situation that was ripe for a dynastic fight. The kingdom was due to go to Athelred. That's how Athelwolf had set the whole thing up with his will. But Athelred would have been about 13 or 14 years old at this point and he would be inheriting a kingdom that was up to its neck in bloodthirsty raiders, potential conflicts with neighboring kingdoms, and of course, a potential fight with his older brother in Kent. Not exactly the situation you want to dump upon an untested Athling in his early teenaged years. I mean, really, what would he do? Try and keep his voice from cracking while giving commands to the werod? The poor kid was probably still in that awkward phase where he had to hide unexpected erections. Now, perhaps Athelred thought he could bolster his station by marrying Judith. It was sort of a family tradition. And she was very wealthy and well-connected. However, Judith was no fool. And my guess is that she already married one West Saxon too many. And the idea of getting tied to this likely spotty and awkward Atheling was a bridge too far for her. But she wasn't going to leave it to chance. After all, she was a wise and hardened 16-year-old double queen and double widow. So she sold her English properties and got the hell out of Dodge before any of the other sons of Athelwolf tried to marry her. And the record is silent on one key aspect of this story. It doesn't mention her receiving any help. It doesn't say that she was whisked away by a friendly noble or summoned by her father, King Charles the Bald. There's nothing like that. Rather the record clearly indicates that she sold her properties and returned to Francia. That gives me the impression that she likely spent her four years in Wessex well. And while she was a stranger and possibly naive when she first arrived, she appears to have been paying attention to what was happening and learned the intricacies of politics because it looks like she probably made enough allies and connections within the region to be able to quickly and decisively move on her own goals once the time was right. The record is sparse here, and we're left with a lot of blank spots. But given the lack of any indication that she was summoned or rescued or something along those lines, the likely explanation for what happened is that Queen Judith took care of it herself. And think about what a move like this says about who Judith was. At a time when women, especially young noble women, were often treated as pawns, Judith appears to have been showing a remarkable amount of agency and political skill. Further, it's unlikely that anyone would have intentionally taught her this. This was Wessex. Women in power gave them the willies. And based upon the way Charles ruled, it's doubtful that he would have been a very good instructor, even if he wanted to teach his daughter politics. And I doubt he did. So my guess is that Judith was almost certainly self-educated. And as a result of what she'd learned, Judith's West Saxon troubles were now over. She would be going home to Francia, the home that she left four years earlier when her father gave her to an aging English king. A lot had happened in that time. She was returning to her childhood home a changed woman, and as a queen. But to her father, King Charles the Bald, she was still a daughter, and thus, a piece to play in the political game he was engaged in. A game, incidentally, that he played rather poorly. So, after Judith returned home, Charles the Bald sent her to the monastery at Sen Lee with the intent that she would remain under the protection and guardianship of the royal episcopal, quote, with all the honor due a queen, end quote, and on the condition that she remained chaste, he would find a suitable and legal marriage for her. Eventually. So, she was a prisoner. You can say she's going to get the honor of a queen all you want, but she was being shut away in a monastery, and any power she'd grown accustomed to exercising over the last four years had evaporated. She was back to square one. And I'm not the first to say it. In fact, in fact, Just about everyone who's living at this time was saying it. But f*** Charles the Bald. But I don't want to leave this story here and go back to Britain. I actually want to follow this through to the end. Because I've become rather fond of Judith, and I know many of you have as well. So I think she deserves a proper send-off. So, after her disastrous time in Britain, Judith found herself back at home and locked up with a bunch of nuns. And so, other than talking about the Bible, her only recreation probably involved embroidering. What more could a red-blooded 16-year-old want? Meanwhile, the conflict in West Francia was raging. That period of peace I mentioned earlier didn't last very long. In fact, it lasted just barely long enough to accomplish one thing. It directed the Scandinavian attentions towards the British Isles the great empire of Charlemagne had devolved into a morass of infighting, and the only time there was any peace was when this noble or that noble managed to oust his rival from power. The trouble being that the ousted noble would often return with an army of his own. So chaos was the order of the day, and at this particular point in time, Charles the Bald was on the losing side of the fight. But cloistered away in the monastery of Sen Li, Judith had met a young man. His name was Baldwin. He was about 10 years or so older than her. He was a gifted warrior, having the nickname Bras de Fer, which means iron arm. And it appears that Judith was quite taken with him. At around Christmas of 861, almost exactly a year after King Athelbald's death, Judith eloped with Baldwin. The language in the annals suggests that this was her choice. That Baldwin proposed and she accepted. There's no indication of a bride theft or any sort of coercion. In fact, many scholars suspect that Judith was the instigator of the relationship. She met a man and she liked him. It was that simple. Well, that isn't exactly true. Nothing is simple. Despite being a dowager queen, she was still a woman. Judith needed the permission of a male relative to get married. And presumably, her father was unable to provide consent because he was too busy losing his kingdom. Or he was just unwilling to provide it. But no worries. Judith's brother, Louis the Stammerer, consented to the marriage for him. And Charles went apeshit. Judith was a valuable political piece on the board. And Charles may have had plans for her, He might have even been lining up a marriage that could have enabled him to fix the mess he was in. So the fact that he was upset is somewhat understandable. What he did, however... Well, I'll let you judge. First, he tried to capture them. But that didn't work out. They had already fled Sen Lee. The hunt continued for some time, but Charles's men never managed to catch up with the couple. And after about a year of running they found safety at the court of Charles's rival and cousin, King Lothaire II of Lorraine. And that made things a little more complicated for Charles. So, he attempted to resolve this through court intrigue, and he sent a message to his cousin demanding that Judith be returned to his custody. And Lothair refused. And despite having way bigger fish to fry, Charles went nuclear over this. He had his own bishops excommunicate Baldwin and Judith. His reaction to his daughter getting married, a marriage, by the way, that her brother and the future heir to the kingdom had consented to, was to conspire to have her barred from taking part in the sacraments, which could mean that her soul was now in jeopardy, and depending on how extreme the views of the people were in the area, it might even result in her being barred from Christian society in general. So based upon what Charles did, Judith was at least running the risk of not getting into heaven. And she might find herself unable to even do basic things like buy bread at market. All because she wanted to marry a man of her own choosing. You can kind of see why Charles had so many enemies, can't you? Now, Judith wasn't about to accept her fate of social and spiritual exile, nor was she going to leave Baldwin. She was 17 a double queen, a double widow, on her third marriage, and, this is my guess, tired of her father's shit. But, shouting at her father for being unreasonable wasn't going to resolve the issue. He was making it clear that the only way this would be resolved was if she left Baldwin and annulled the marriage. So she and Baldwin did the smart thing. If you've been excommunicated and you have nothing left to lose then it's time to go to the one person who can fix it. They traveled to Rome and met with Pope Nicholas I. And this meeting tells us a bit about the kind of person that Baldwin was. It also gives us a window into how he felt about Judith. Apparently, he told the Pope that if their marriage wasn't legitimized and if the excommunication wasn't lifted, he would join the Vikings. Baller. This was not an idle threat. We know that Baldwin was a skilled warrior and one of the better military minds of Christendom at the time. If he built a Viking crew of his own, he very well may have been able to take on Rome. And he actually knew where it was. The Pope had a serious problem on his hands. So, Nicholas I did the sensible thing and ordered the excommunication of Judith and Baldwin be withdrawn. And he declared the marriage to be valid. Afterwards, the couple was married a second time in public, just to be safe. Charles did not attend that wedding. He did send some officials in his place, and that was probably for the best. I don't think anyone wanted to hear that toast. The Pope, however, wasn't done. He told Charles that he should grant Baldwin honors worthy of his station. And Charles did as he was asked. So he made Baldwin the first margrave, which was basically a military count, of Flanders. I don't know the precise reasons for why the Pope did this. Whether it was for fear that Baldwin might flip if he wasn't properly rewarded, or whether he was generally troubled by Charles' behavior, and he was giving him a step-by-step guide to being nice to his new son-in-law. It's probably the former, but I really like the latter. Regardless, regardless, In classic Charles fashion, Baldwin was given an incredibly embattled territory. And some scholars suspect that Charles was hoping that the Viking threat would sort out his Baldwin problem. But no luck for Charles. Baldwin was actually incredibly skilled when it came to war. Frankly, Charles should have counted his lucky stars, because not only was Baldwin an incredibly effective margrave, he was also a devoted son-in-law. Despite being given every reason to hate Charles, Baldwin remained loyal, both to him and to his successor, Baldwin's brother-in-law, Louis the Stammerer. Not only that, but once granted their proper titles, Judith and Baldwin were an incredible power couple. Under Judith and her husband's rule, the foundation was set that would make Flanders one of the most powerful territories of France. And during those years, he and Judith had several children their descendants would go on to become incredibly influential people in European politics. In fact, the royal family of England, starting with Queen Matilda, the wife of King William the Conqueror, and also their sons, King William Rufus and King Henry I, we have Judith's descendants on the throne of England. Matilda was Judith's great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter, She was also Alfred's great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter as well, for that matter. But when Judith married Baldwin, she couldn't have possibly known that her dynasty would end up being linked to two of the most famous kings in English history, and would persist throughout the ages. She appears to have just been a politically skilled, determined woman marrying a man for the best possible reason. Because she liked him. Tragically, Judith died young, only about 26 years old, and Baldwin was left with several young children to care for, an embattled principality, and probably a broken heart. He never remarried, despite still being quite young himself, and he remained steadfastly loyal to her family for the rest of his days. Nine years later, Baldwin followed Judith, and the territory was given to their son, Count Baldwin II. But for a time, Judith and her Baldwin defied one of the most powerful men in Europe, and even threatened a pope, just to be together. It's the greatest love story you've never heard. But the thing that my mind keeps going back to is how she must have felt at Sen Lee. She was 17. She had spent her entire life as a political pawn. What little agency she had in her few years was hard won. And after a string of tragedies, she was suddenly back under her father's control, having lost everything. And she was probably lonely. She was 17 after all, and her first marriage couldn't have been very good. And the second marriage doesn't appear to have been much better. And then along comes this young warrior named Baldwin. In a time where European women weren't given a choice, in a time where a princess could face catastrophic consequences for defying the will of her male guardians, Judith made a choice. It didn't matter to her whether her father would approve. She knew what she wanted. It was that simple. What she wanted was Baldwin. And she got him. If you have any questions comments or concerns you can reach me at the british history podcast at gmail.com you can also join us on twitter we're at british podcast and you can find links to all our other communities at the british history Podcast.com. thanks for listening